Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, fitness, prevention, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. Uh, today's guest is Dr. Benjamin Bickman, PhD. He is the author of a book titled Why We Get Sick, which is obviously super relevant uh, today. He has a PhD in bioenergetics. Uh, he has multiple publications and presentations. He is currently a professor at BYU and studies metabolic health. So, Dr. Bickman, welcome. Hey, Greg, thanks, brother. I'm glad to be here. Glad to chat with you about all things human metabolism. You bet. All right. First, let's start off. Give us a little bit of background and just kind of tell us about your research, then kind of your motivation in, in writing this book. Yeah, my research interest is to better understand uh, the origins and consequences of uh, metabolic alterations or metabolic disruption. And really, that itself is maybe, that's definitely too vague of a term. Uh, namely, we focus on the hormone insulin and its role in causing metabolic problems. Uh, so that has led my lab more and more to focus on a handful of tissues, but most especially the fat, uh, the fat tissue in, in humans to the point that we actually have um, fat biopsies that we do in my lab to, to study fat tissue from humans. So the overarching goal, again, uh, is to study um, human metabolic function, specifically to, to look at it through the lens of insulin. And that, the conclusion, uh, and, and that was certainly an impetus for the book, uh, has been that insulin, when it is chronically elevated, starts to drive most of the chronic diseases that we're all afraid of. And I, you know, and I say chronic disease, and of course I mean that, and that's certainly what I focused on in the book. But in hindsight, I wish I would have had a chapter about infectious diseases, as the world's so interested in that lately. And disorders of insulin um, are really the the leading pre-existing conditions that uh, that predict whether someone will have a very serious or very mild um, reaction to to a viral infection, including um, the one that we're all aware of at the moment with COVID. Uh, so that's, that's the, the lab goal. And my personal goal is, and I guess I could sum up in a way that it's to help encourage the awareness of insulin in any discussion of chronic diseases. So how long have you been doing this type of research? Yeah, yeah. So it really started in earnest um, with my postdoctoral fellowship uh, which was uh, 2008. And so, you know, coming on 12, 13 years about, and I've been running my own lab, the Metabolism Research Lab here at BYU for almost 10 years. Wow. Okay. Well, very good. Well, let's kind of get into the book a little bit and just kind of start with the basics. So define what is insulin resistance and why is it bad? Yeah. Yeah. So insulin resistance is really two things. Uh, and, and I have to, I have to describe these two pillars, or rather, these two sides of the coin that we call insulin resistance, in order for, uh, in order to truly understand why it's connected, or rather, how it's connected to almost every chronic disease. Now, insulin resistance itself is a term that was originally created to describe what is seen in an isolated cell culture, we call it. Like imagine the, the kind of typical little Petri dish of cells growing in a little incubator in a lab somewhere, like what I have across the hallway in my lab right now. It, it, what we could do with fat cells or muscle cells or, or liver cells, we could put chemicals on those cells and then spike them with insulin and then see what the insulin does. And we would detect, ah, insulin isn't doing what it used to do as well as it did before. That is insulin resistance. So, so the actual term insulin resistance really reflects this one phenomenon that some cells in the body, not all, and we need to keep that in mind when I describe the other aspect, the other half of insulin resistance, but some cells of the body don't respond to insulin as well as they did before. So, in, and importantly, 
every cell in the body literally has insulin receptors. In other words, every cell in the body will, um, is, is going to respond to insulin in some way, or rather insulin, if I flip it, can stimulate every cell in the body to do something. So some of those cells stop responding as well to insulin. That's the insulin resistance aspect of it. But we can't tease out the other aspect of it, which is chronically elevated insulin. If you have insulin resistance in the body, so now we're leaving the individual cells and we're going to the whole body. If you have insulin resistance in a clinical situation, for example, then you have hyperinsulinemia, or in other words, elevated insulin. And that's important because Remember, some cells continue to respond to insulin as well as they ever did. But now, unfortunately, swimming in this sea of insulin, they're overstimulated. They're hyperactive with regards to what insulin would be telling that cell, um, what it would be telling that cell to do. That is insulin resistance. And, and then your, your follow-up question of why it matters it's because almost every chronic disease in some way, to some degree, is going to be either caused by this, this confluence of these two things that I'm calling insulin resistance, or it's going to be made worse or exacerbated by insulin resistance. And this covers an enormous spectrum of disorders, which was certainly part of the reason I wanted to write the book, uh, but things as seemingly distinct. You, you, you'd hear these disorders and you would think they have nothing in common, things like Alzheimer's disease, migraines, fatty liver disease, infertility like polycystic ovarian syndrome in women or erectile dysfunction in men, hypertension, osteoarthritis, and, and more, much, much more. You'd, you'd hear that list and think those are not related to each other at all. And yet, to, to a very large degree, in some instances completely, insulin resistance is the common root. And I feel so, um, I hate to use this word, but passionate in sharing this message because I could, I, I could imagine someone who would hear this um, discussion at some point in the future and, and they, would, they would think through their day and they open their medicine cabinet and you have this guy who's taking a medication for his type 2 diabetes, he's taking a medication for his blood pressure, he's taking a medication for his erectile dysfunction and what he could do is realize, wait, these medications are just trying to trim these branches coming off of this sick tree. And so rather than just focus on pruning these little branches that are always going to grow back because a medication will never solve these problems, you just cut down the tree. You acknowledge the common root here. And so when you acknowledge the role of insulin resistance as being fundamental to so many of these diseases, and they really are, I would encourage anyone who reads the book, please look at all the citations that I reference in the book to know that I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, but you acknowledge the role of insulin resistance as a common cause. And then once you do that, you acknowledge the role of lifestyle as a solution to the insulin resistance because it is at its core a lifestyle problem. And the food we eat, as I like to say, is the culprit or the cure. And so we just have to shift it. If, if the food has been the culprit, let's change the way we eat and let it start working for us rather than against us. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, you know, as a clinician, I couldn't agree more. In, in the last few years, you know, I've really been motivated to look beyond the, the quote, standard of care where we're just giving medications, but not treating the root problem. And it's amazing when patients buy into that concept of how much is improved. I mean, not only their diabetes, but you're right, their, their arthritis. Yep. I mean, you know, just, just all kinds of things. And so it's unfortunate that, that more doctors aren't preaching that message and doing that. And we're just, you know, giving more and more pills, which is, is not fixing the root problem. So. No, that's absolutely right. In fact, one of the, uh, when I hear of a clinician, when I hear of, say, a physician who's started to change because they, they've sort of been converted, they've seen the light, it is like they have a renewed enthusiasm for their career. I have a very good friend here in Utah who had been practicing medicine for over 20 years and, and, and just getting a little discouraged with his, with what he thought in his more honest moments was his inability to actually heal people, especially those that would come in with type two diabetes. Yep. 
and you know they'd leave with a prescription for metformin and then eventually it would they would graduate to insulin therapy and 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 more and, and more and the only follow-up visits with these individuals would be increasing the dose of the of the medication the problem with that paradigm is you know for example type 2 diabetes it is not caused by a lack of metformin a lack of metformin is not the cause of this disease so giving the drug whatever the disease isn't going to cure the problem it's you have to take that more fundamental um, view which is uh, the drug will only treat a symptom what's the cause how can i address it and so this friend of mine steve barry he's he's sort of flipped that switch and has like i said just a renewed enthusiasm he has he, he is healing people and that's a bit of a cliche word but type 2 diabetes is classically looked at which is fundamentally an insulin resistance problem it's viewed as an irreversible problem and and yet what happens when a person comes back a few months later and there's zero clinical evidence of the disease well that to me sounds like you've cured it absolutely and and that's me to a t uh you know i started this journey this journey several years ago and you know i was doing kind of standard of care and patients weren't getting any better and so i just kind of started doing a deep dive you know, myself and realizing all this stuff that you're talking about. And it's amazing the transformation in, in patients. And so it, it absolutely has, it made, it's made me excited again as a clinician that, that I can yep. actually help people. And most of the time it's, it's not through medicine. So let's talk about diabetes for a minute uh, because we're taught, I mean, I was taught in medical school and, you know, everywhere <laughs> that once you get diabetes, you have it for life. You cannot cure diabetes. Um, yeah. I have found that not to be the case as I'm, you know, doing these uh, kind of uh, lifestyle modifications. And I, I read somewhere, I believe it was an endocrinologist that said these beta cells, uh, especially if we catch it early enough, they're just kind of de-differentiated. So they're not, they're not dead. And so they can, you know, they can begin to work again. Um, mm -hmm. what, what would you say to, to all that? Yeah. Yeah. In the case of type two diabetes, that, that is absolutely true. Our view on type 2 diabetes has gotten so skewed and there's been such, not irresponsible, but, but certainly vague language that has been used, uh, whether out of ignorance or deliberately to, to you know, promote a, a different view of the disease that helps, uh, that actually promotes the use of, of drugs yeah. as the solution. But uh, the, the language that is used in type 2 diabetes is that your, your pancreas is burned out and now you aren't making enough insulin. The first part of that is absolutely false. There's no evidence at all that the pancreas has passed a point of no return, none. Um, indeed, there is in fact evidence to suggest to whatever degree a type 2 diabetic may have lost some insulin producing beta cells and that is not at all a universal phenomenon within type 2 diabetes, not at all. But to whatever, to whatever degree someone might have, in fact, have uh, developed a lower number of beta cells, there is a phenomenon, they, they can reverse it. There's this beta cell reversal that this is not like type 1 diabetes, which is the person's auto, uh, immune system is constantly destroying the beta cells far, far, far from it. These are beta cells that have just, again, if it has happened at all in a type 2 diabetic, they've just stopped uh, and, and they, they can come back to life as needed. And this, there is, in fact, these recorded instances of beta cell reversal. However, that's the first part of, of the story that is commonly used with regards to type 2 diabetes, that your pancreas is burned out. And then the second part is that you don't have enough insulin. There is an ounce of truth to that you don't have enough insulin. But that's a relative term because what you cannot say about type 2 diabetes is that you don't have any insulin it never goes to zero like it would in a type one diabetic. In, in reality, the, 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 the timeline would look something like this. They started with this very low modest level of insulin like a healthy insulin sensitive person has. It starts to climb, 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 climb over the years. And then in fact, let me express it a different way. So here is insulin and here's glucose uh, and, and the insulin because of their diet is they're getting more and more insulin resistant. But, and, and so even though their insulin is now multiples, multiples higher than it was before, because the, but the insulin, it's not working as well, but it's working well enough that it can keep glucose normal. And this is why so often when we look at type 2 diabetes as a glucose disease, we don't diagnose it until a decade or so later. 
than we could have because it's only once the body becomes so resistant to its own insulin and maybe in some people the insulin starts to come down a bit but never goes back to as low as it was never it might come down a bit though but it's still multiples higher than it was before now the glucose starts to climb and then we detect the problem so our glucocentric paradigm of type 2 diabetes leads us to detect the problem too late, but it also leads us to treat it very, very poorly. Because in this same paradigm of, of now elevated insulin and elevated glucose that we call type 2 diabetes, which it is, it is a state of elevated insulin and glucose and glucagon, but that's another matter. The, the, the clinician will say, the clinician will have no regard for the insulin. Yep. They will just be looking at the glucose. And in, the, in, in a moment of true scientific and biomedical tragedy, they will say, let's just push your insulin up even higher by giving you insulin secretagogue medications like sulfonylureas or outright give you insulin, exogenous insulin, and then we'll push the insulin to super physiological levels higher than it ever was before. And that is enough to overcome the insulin resistance, at least for a time. And uh, we've reached our clinical goal, which is to lower your glucose. But the tragedy in that paradigm is that when we give a type 2 diabetic an insulin therapy, they get fatter and sicker than they were before. And the more we push up the insulin to keep the glucose in check, they become three times more likely to die from heart disease and twice as likely to die from cancer. And they'll typically gain about 20 pounds in the first six months of insulin therapy. So this is not, so, so we, we end up killing them but we do so with great glycemic control. It's not a glucose disease. It's a disease of hyperinsulinemia. And so putting the insulin even higher is the worst thing we can do. And the analogy I use in the book is just so good. So I got to come back to it. It's, if, if I may say so myself, it's so good. It's, it's like uh, trying to treat a type 2 diabetic by giving them insulin therapy is like trying to help an alcoholic by giving them another glass of wine. You're, you're giving them more of the very substance that caused the problem. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, kind of my uh, uh, trophy case that I've, I've talked about on this podcast before is a guy who had an A1C of 14 and a half. For those of you that don't know what an A1C is, it's kind of a, kind of a measure uh, of, of how your, your blood glucose over a three-month time period. He was very resistant to go on medication he, he was very open to my suggestions about significantly changing mm -hmm. his diet, you know, doing a lower carb type of a diet, some, some intermittent fasting. And so anyways, I let him try. Uh, I was even skeptical with an A1C that high. I told him to come back in three months. So he came back in four. And when he came back, he had done everything that I told him to the T. His A1C was four and a half. Oh my goodness. Drops 10 points. His insulin levels were normal, whereas before, obviously, his insulin levels were very high. Yeah. Uh, so he cured his diabetes. It's exactly, that's exactly right. We don't have to, but you cannot, I appreciate conventional thinking and with conventional clinical medicine, when they say the diabetes, type 2 diabetes is irreversible, because if you're using drugs to try to do that, nope, never. Yep. You'll never, you'll never solve the problem. You'll only ever have to be taking more and more drugs, which, which is, and I don't mean to sound cynical, but that is a wonderful way to continue to sell drugs, which is all some people would care about, unfortunately. Uh, but that's a little beside the point. But, but the reality is, if you address the actual root of the problem, a lifestyle, with namely a lifestyle solution, you cure the disorder in this yep. case. Yeah. And I've done a whole podcast on how st our standard of, of medicine uh, is coerced by big pharma. And, uh, you know, the more I learn about that, the more disturbing it is. But, you know, that's a that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, I, we see eye to eye in that regard. Perfect. OK. So why is it are we as clinicians not taught to check fasting insulin levels? I have started doing that personally. And you're absolutely right. You will see high insulin levels a lot of times before the glucose goes up. Uh, and so you can begin to talk to a patient about, you know, reversing, you know, or lowering those insulin levels. But why do you think the standard medical community is not taught that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm inclined to be uh, charitable or, 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 you know, compassionate in, in this regard because a physician only knows what he or she has been taught. Now, and, and I don't mean that 
in a sort of, I genuinely don't mean that in a derogatory way as if, well, they're, you know, they're too ignorant to learn something on their own. Not at all. Of course, far, far from it. These are very intelligent, very capable people. Sure. But if they haven't had this concept introduced to them one way or another, whether in a formal classroom setting or a podcast that sort of plants the seed, if you will, it's, it's not fair to, uh, for, for those of us that sort of see things the way we do to expect them to see it the same way. Now, I think historically why insulin hasn't, uh, a focus on insulin hasn't worked its way into conventional, you know, curricula of undergraduate or, or graduate um, uh, education with, uh, in the realm of medicine. I, I attribute it to two causes generally. One is historic and one is scientific. Historically, the most obvious symptom of diabetes, type 1, type 2 even, but type 1 was, of course, historically much more relevant, um, insofar as type two was so uncommon, but it, the most obvious manifestation of the disease was a sim, was, was itself a manifestation of the hyperglycemia. And that is the polyuria, the excess urine production, the person's urinating all the time, liters and liters of urine per day. And, and indeed that is the word, that is where the word diabetes comes from. We say diabetes because of the urine production and that is itself a result of the hyperglycemia because the glucose levels get so high, you know, up into the 200s or so, and that or, or beyond. But once it gets to that point, we've passed a threshold where the kidneys can no longer keep all that glucose in the blood. And now the kidneys are, are draining this glucose into the urine, and that glucose is pulling a lot of water from the blood with it. And thus the person is urinating a lot. And, and that's where you'd see the flies coming to the urine or the dog licking the urine, which is why we added on that other term, mellitus, to refer to the fact that the glucose um, was enriched within the urine. Uh, historically, I, I, think it's, I think we can see some, some rationale for the glucose-centric paradigm. And then scientifically, we also can, because uh, historically... Uh, it was much easier to measure glucose. Even to this day, we've been able to measure glucose from human blood for decades, decades longer than we have ever been able to measure insulin. And to the point nowadays where we can do it with a single little drop of blood in the convenience of our own home with a glucometer. You cannot do that with insulin. Insulin was only measured within the past few decades. And most assays to this day that measure insulin need radiation approval to do it because they'll do what's called a radioimmunoassay. That's one of the most, well, one of the most affordable ways of measuring insulin. And so the, the, the scientific hurdles are very real, um, which is, you know, again, at its most simple, at its simplest, you could be in a doctor's office, do a finger prick, put a glucose strip onto it, boom, you got your glucose number, you're done. But if you want to get your insulin measured, you need a full blood draw. And you send that blood draw to the lab and you've got to make sure that that box is checked. You got to make sure that the patient's insurance will pay for the insulin, which many won't, or that the patient is alternatively prepared to pay that expense out of pocket or the clinic is prepared to suck that cost, mm -hmm. you know, but one way or another, it doesn't negate the fact that there are some hurdles. So historically, scientifically, I think we can be, we can be, compassionate uh, when, we, when we wonder, well, boy, why do we continue to be obsessed with glucose and why are we ignoring insulin? I think those are very genuine hurdles. But I would also now say that it's becoming less and less uh, forgivable uh, as, we, as we learn more and as the, as the ability to measure insulin has become so much simpler, I think we need, we are past due to start making this transition and appreciate glucose. It certainly has a predictive diagnostic value. I'm not ignoring that fact. It on its own is a pathogenic molecule, but it pales in comparison to the pathogenicity of chronically elevated insulin. No comparison whatsoever. So we, we, we are past due. We need to start to make this shift back. And indeed, Greg, one of the main reasons I am, I'm interested in doing podcasts is that one takeaway, especially a guy like you and with what I presume to be much of your audience operating in the biomedical field. We have to put insulin on this we, we, uh, in our sites. We have to start zeroing on insulin. The, like I mentioned earlier, the longer we, we don't do this, we keep our, our, our view focused on something else, uh, the worse we're going to be detecting problems. 
Yeah, for sure. You know, one of my motivations of doing this podcast is to get the message out to doctors. Now, I know a lot of my patients listen to this, but I'm, I'm hoping that doctors will have a light bulb moment as I did several years ago that this uh, you know, conventional you know, medicine that we're doing is not making people better. Yeah, that's right. Um, so most people are you know, familiar with insulin as it pertains to diabetes you go you know, in-depth in your book about how insulin uh, causes uh, or affects all kinds of other diseases. So just talk a little bit more about that. Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, you mentioned Alzheimer's and, and, and other things. So just talk about what else you know, high insulin levels do. Yeah, so one of the reasons I didn't put the word insulin resistance in the title of my book, which, which you know, that is certainly the focus of the book. So I, I ought to have been justified in you know, calling it a book about, you know, the title could have been a book about insulin resistance, but no one would have bought it because they only would have thought it was relevant to diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I definitely wanted, I mean, that's part of the frustration, right? It's, it's me trying to take insulin outside of just being relevant to diabetes in clinical conversations and, and allowing people to see its true scope. So um, insulin does definitely, it most certainly affects glucose. It's one of the most powerful um, signals to lower blood glucose. And thank heavens we have it. The absence of insulin is lethal, partly because the person would have chronically vastly elevated glucose levels, and that is dangerous. Uh, And it it can lead to a coma and and, and death, um, not even over that long of a period of time. So you eat a starchy, sugary meal, glucose levels uh, will spike up, and if it stays too high for too long, that's, that's unhealthy and even da- uh, lethal. And so insulin shoots up out of the pancreas into the blood, opening these glucose doors, if you will, in, in a handful of tissues throughout the body, but most especially the muscle that allows the glucose to come out of the blood into the tissues. And then insulin, having done that job, comes back down. That's typically the only um, job people believe insulin has. And of course, that's very, very far from the truth. Insulin actually only stimulates glucose uptake into a very few tissues, fat cells, muscle cells, the heart, and to some degree, the brain. At every other cell in the body, literally every other cell that responds to insulin, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with glucose uptake. The theme of insulin throughout the body at every cell is I, I perhaps I could say that it tells cells what to do with energy. And to get a little more specific, it will tell cells what to do with nutrients, with, with the kind of base building blocks of nutrients, glucose, amino acids, and fatty acids, and then tell the cell what to do with those things. Not that it necessarily will stimulate the uptake, although to various degrees it does. It does drive, in some instances, the the movement of those nutrients from the blood into the cell. But even in tissues where it doesn't stimulate the uptake, it still tells the cells what to do. Like, for example, uh, the the liver. The liver does not need insulin for glucose uptake. The glucose can just come rushing into the liver uh, on its own. It does not need insulin as a mediator. But nevertheless, when insulin is high, as glucose is high, it tells the liver what to do with that glucose, namely to store it as glycogen. It tells the liver what to do with the fat that it just took in, with the amino acids that it just took in. So again, the theme of insulin is to tell a cell what to do with energy. And then we start to see this reflected to varying degrees across certain pathologies, like with Alzheimer's disease, as the brain has become insulin resistant, it now cannot get enough glucose to meet its energetic needs. And as the blood vessels become insulin resistant, now they don't get this signal to produce nitric oxide. And so they don't dilate as well and they stay constricted, causing one of that being one of the main causes of hypertension. And then other diseases have nothing to do with the kind of anabolic effect of insulin, um, but more of just highlighting the, the, the variety of insulin's effects. Like for example, the theca cells of the ovaries, the theca cells have a very unique job. Those are the steroid producing cells of of a woman's ovaries. And the theca cells have an enzyme in them called aromatase. And aromatase will uh, mediate the conversion of testosterone into the, the, the estrogens. Of course, you know, estrogen is a sort of small little family of hormones itself. 
But aromatase mediates that conversion. All of the estrogens were once testosterone and aromatase just converts them. And of course, ovaries do that more than testes do in a man, which is why a woman will have relatively higher estrogens. Insulin inhibits that enzyme, oddly enough. And when insulin is chronically elevated, like with insulin resistance, it inhibits aromatase too much. And now this woman's ovaries are producing too few estrogens to the point that she no longer ovulates and too much androgens to the point that she now has maybe more coarse body hair like you typically see in a man. So all of this is just simply reflective of the, the myriad and variety of effects that insulin initiates throughout the body. And indeed, there are truly dozens of other examples I could go into and in fact do at, at book length. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I want to take that and, and talk about uh, infectious disease, specifically COVID uh, for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been several things out there where people have looked at, at the literature in regards to COVID and have determined that the, the biggest single determinant of uh, how you do with COVID is metabolic health. Okay? Yeah. And one, just I, I, I want you to kind of describe why insulin affects uh, the, or how insulin affects the immune system. And my, the, the second part of that question, and something I've been very frustrated with, is why we have not heard more of that in the media from the Surgeon General's office that would trickle down to, to doctors because I don't know of anybody, doctors, and it frustrates me that, that uh, are preaching that message. And yeah. it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's frustrating. Dr. Um, and I'm probably going to say her name wrong, Dr. Mariella Glant, uh, who's an mm -hmm. endocrinologist, she wrote a book uh, titled How to Eat in the Time of COVID-19. Yeah, I wrote the and, foreword for that. Oh, you did? Okay, very good. Yeah, yeah I know uh, Mariella. She's great. Oh, well, I, she, you know, she mentioned in there that in one month, okay, one month of a, of a low-carb type of a diet, you can see signs of significantly reduced insulin and improved metabolic health. And so what I've been frustrated at is if this message would have gotten out there six months ago, nine months ago, again, from the top down of doctors, hey, you know, really push this message. Everybody push this message of metabolic health. Think of the lives that we could have saved. But still to this day, we are not hearing that message. Um, yeah, I, yeah. It, it sure is, it sure is uh, puzzling, is, is the best I could say, because we, I think part of the reluctance is it's, it's taboo to point out to someone that, hey, you're, you have too much fat. And I'm, I'm even deliberately saying it the way I am to make it less hopefully offensive, but no, no less true, because someone wouldn't want to hear, hey, you are fat or you are too fat. And so even, even when I'm saying this, I'm, I'm attempting to sort of soften the blow, so to speak, and say, you, you have too much fat. And, you know, it makes it a little more sort of passive voice, I suppose, in a way. But, but that is, in fact, the single most relevant variable. Fat specifically is the single most relevant variable that will determine whether someone has a serious, uh, seriously negative response to COVID-19 infection. And, and there are some fascinating mechanisms that explain that. But, but that is, uh, I, I think there's a reluctance. In fact, I'll come back to that in just a sec. There's a reluctance uh, to, I think, go into that, to take that step and say, hey, you, you got to eat differently because people will view that as too invasive. Like, whoa, whoa, you cannot tell me what to eat. And yet the, the, the paradox there is that well, you're already telling me I can't get close to people. You're telling me I can't see my grandma. You're telling me I have to wear a mask. That seems a hell of a lot more invasive um, to me than telling me I need to change my diet. But, but nevertheless, we've drawn that line. We've clearly drawn that line where no one uh, is, is willing to focus on, I mean, very, very few people are willing to highlight the role of metabolic health as an underlying um, as a relevant, the relevant underlying pre-existing condition in its, you know, in its various ways. And rather, they would just focus on these social distancing measures, which I, I, I'm not criticizing those, uh, you know, so no one misunderstand me. I'm not criticizing those um, necessarily, but, but to not, to point the finger at that and not this 
other issue, I think is naive, this other issue of improving your own metabolic health to improve your own inherent immune diseases. And I think there's a certain amount of naivete involved here, which is we're going to just squash this virus and it's going to be eradicated from the planet. It, that will never happen. That will never happen to my view. And I think it's healthy for everyone to have this view to some degree is that it's inevitable. It is now a new part of the global, global ecosystem. Thankfully, and I hope this term isn't offensive, this expression, I think uh, certainly the data back it up. It is not as lethal, nearly as lethal as anyone predicted or a handful of people did in Utah. The death rate is 0.2%. So, so uh, two, two people in a thousand will die from this out of the entirety of the population in my state. Everyone from, from the hundred year old to the one year old. So that's, that's good news. Uh, now people don't, unfortunately, people don't want good news. Sometimes they, they want bad news. And I think that's a bit of a plague of our society. But nevertheless, uh, the relevance of insulin resistance, which was another aspect of, of when you brought this up, is undeniable. In order, the, the data out of New York published earlier in the year found, and I don't know why they did this, when they published the paper, and, and I think it was JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, they had pre-existing condition number one. So, so first of all, 88% uh, of everyone who is admitted to the hospital because of their COVID infection had one pre-existing condition. Um, no, 88% had two pre-existing conditions and 94% of everyone uh, of everyone admitted had at least one. So, so virtually every single person admitted had a significant pre-existing condition. And as, as they outlined it in the study, pre-existing condition number one was heart disease. Number two was obesity. Number three was diabetes. Number four was morbid obesity. Now, that struck me as odd because why not just take two and four? I'm not making an obscene gesture here. Why not just take two and four, obesity and morbid obesity, and put them together and just call it obesity? And now that's number one, and it is by a significant margin. So obesity is pre-existing condition number one. And then heart disease and diabetes, all of these are disorders related to insulin. They are all certainly metabolic or cardiometabolic, if we want to say that, um, uh, conditions. And the relevance of the fat tissue is fascinating. In order for, and very, very briefly, because I'm not an immunologist, but I know enough to say this, a virus is unique in that it is a small particle. It is not a viable cell on its own, in or, which, which like a bacteria, if someone has a bacterial infection, each individual bacterium is its own cell and it's just multiplying itself. A virus is a particle that needs to get into a cell. And once it has infected that cell, it hijacks the cell and turns it into a factory to produce more of its own viral particles. Fat and so, so, uh, so again, the first step is that the particle, well, the first step is the virus particle has to get into the blood beyond the mucous membrane, which is one layer of defense in and of itself. But regardless of that, assuming that the viral particle is in the blood, it has to get into a cell to truly infect the body. And fat cells take in that COVID-19 particle more than just about any cell. It has a higher expression of these little doorways, these co-receptors called ACE2 than, than almost any other cell in the body does. And, and by mass, uh, the fat tissue is the highest expressor of, of these co-receptors for COVID-19. And so having more fat tissue means you have more of these factories, these potential factories for COVID to, to, to hijack, to infect and take over. And additionally, when fat cells have become infected, they are very good at producing pro-inflammatory cytokines, including those that will promote blood clotting it, which is a problem with COVID-19 infection. Part of the lethality is the clotting. And so we have this excess fat tissue and all we've done is uh, expand or even help out COVID-19's ability to infect and wreak havoc on the body. And, and I think this virus has been a wake-up call as it's exposed how unhealthy we are in America. Not that we shouldn't have known that already. I mean, almost everything is going up, heart disease, cancer, despite yep. the advances in medicine. But yeah, it's really exposed how, how sick we are. You know, I certainly don't want to diminish those that have been affected by COVID. Um, I recently yeah. lost a, a colleague and a friend uh, to, to COVID. And so that's why I'm so passionate about this. And I'm passionate about doctors, if you're listening, 
man, start checking fasting, fasting insulin levels, learn as I did, you, you have to look outside of, you know, the American Heart Association recommendations on diet, Yes. you know, and, and, you know, learn what to tell your patients and how to get them healthier. I mean, it's, it's up to, it's up to us as, as clinicians to spread this message and let's, let's get people healthier. Yeah. Yeah. And be prepared to don't, don't shy away from the potential awkwardness of that conversation when it's a patient who now easy for me to say, right. I'm not a clinician at all, but I appreciate this, that there, there is that boundary that some people might not want to step over, which is to say to the individual, you uh, and your body type as a result, which is a result of whatever decisions you've been making may be increasing or reducing your risk of a serious, of the seriousness of the infection. And as I've learned over the years, just how much diet can improve everything, as you've been saying, and as you talk about in the book, you know, the decreased risk of, of Alzheimer's and, and arthritis, not to mention weight uh, and, and heart disease and all those things. Yeah, to me, it's, a, it's an easy conversation because I just say, look, I'm not doing you any favors if I just prescribe you another medicine. You know, if yeah. you truly want to get better, uh, this is what you got to do. Now, not everybody buys into it, but at least yep. I've, I've done my part. So yeah, some people just want the simplicity of a pill and consequences be damned. And and I get it. That's unfortunate. And and as much as you and I would describe some of the solutions to insulin resistance, they are simple, but that doesn't mean they're easy because when you start changing someone's diet and their habits, you're, you're really forcing some uncomfortable changes. Like your guy who responded so terrifically over the four months, lowering his HbA1c from 14 to four and a half. That is the kind of guy who was ready to do it. Um, a lot of people aren't. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's go into that because that's going to be, you know, everybody's question is, okay, uh, how do we fix this? You know, we're, we're very sick, obviously, in America. A lot of people, high percentage of people have insulin resistance. So how do we fix it? Yeah, yeah. So there are, to fix it, we just need, we would need to understand, well, what, what caused it in the first place? And then there, this conversation could be quite, well, you know, longer than it needs to be. So I'll, I'll focus on what I believe is the most relevant, and that is lowering insulin. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, insulin resistance is unavoidably connected to hyperinsulinemia. Indeed, hyperinsulinemia is one of the key causes. So I can, whether it's treating little individual cells with elevated insulin or whether it's humans and we increase their insulin, chronically elevated insulin is a cause of insulin resistance. And I submit that it's the strongest, most relevant. And so the solution then is lower the insulin. And it's, it is simple, but again, not easy when we start changing diet. And I, I believe there are kind of four pillars or four, four legs to this stool um, uh, upon which insulin resistance is built. And so we can, in improving insulin sensitivity, lowering insulin. The first one is control carbohydrates. And that doesn't mean don't eat any, although a human can thrive without eating any, but nevertheless, I just mean be smart about it. Um, focus, cut out the, the, the most, the starchiest uh, fruits, vegetables, and certainly grains or, or diminish them greatly in the diet. And, and then avoid Sugar, of course, that's, that's obvious, but again, easier said than done. I get it, but you know, focus on fruits and vegetables and, and eat them, don't drink them. You know, that's maybe the simplest um, and you know, kind of high impact version of that. So control carbohydrates, and that is meaningful because we've been told that the bulk of all of our diets should be, the majority of our diets should be carbohydrates. And I think that is an absolute travesty. And I think it is an unscientific approach. hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. And second, prioritize protein. Make sure you're eating enough protein to support um, satiety because protein is very good at at telling your body you're full and to sustain your lean mass, even maybe grow it, your muscle and your muscle and your bone. And this must be, this is a delicate thing to say. I know, unfortunately, it must be animal source protein. Plant source protein is not sufficient we are not meant to get our protein from plants. That is not only reflected in nature because there's no meaningful source of protein from any plant, but we, we end up creating other problems. When we're trying to get our protein from, say, peas, you have peas are so deficient in protein that we have to take, say, a thousand peas and distill them, refine them to get a serving of protein. Unfortunately, as we're concentrating all of that protein to try to get one serving, 
we're also getting things we don't want as we're concentrating these proteins, which is anti-nutrients like phytic acids or tannins or trypsin inhibitors. These are honest to goodness, real molecules inherent in these plants that will prevent your intestines um, from digesting the protein. It, it's like the plant is fighting back in its own way. Now that sounds silly and I don't mean for it to, to sound silly, but, but there is in fact such thing as anti-nutrients mm -hmm. that are inherent in every plant protein. And then third, when you, or the second consequence of this, when you've concentrated this plant um, so heavily and processed it, you also end up getting a potentially dangerously high levels of the minerals that are in these plants and including minerals that we call heavy metals like lead and arsenic. And I would encourage anyone to look up something called the Clean Label Project to look at what this third party did to find this in plant proteins most especially. So prioritize protein, make sure you're getting enough, but get it from animal sources. And that might be uncomfortable for some, um, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, if people have a sort of moral, um, ethical dilemma, I'd say, well, you kill more animals overall by eating soybeans and, 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 and peas because of the farming practices than you do from ranching or animal-based practices. Nevertheless, the third rule is don't fear fat. Yep. Eat fat, enjoy fat, certainly take all the fat that comes with the protein that you are prioritizing because in nature, protein and fat come together. They're supposed to come together. When someone just takes pure whey, which is a wonderful protein, they will have a certain anabolic effect at the muscle from it. But when you take um, protein and fat together in a one-to-one -one mass, it's more anabolic than the protein alone is. So it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he put these best sources of protein always comes with fat dairy, eggs, meat. It always comes with fat. It's supposed to come with fat. Those two macronutrients are a match, maybe literally made in heaven. So eat them that way. Um, and so don't fear fat. And then lastly, and partly because fat does not increase insulin. Carbohydrates increase insulin. Protein does it a little bit. A pro a fat doesn't. And then lastly, it's don't, uh, basically watch the clock. Don't feel the need to eat every two hours. This, this, asinine, unscientific advice of eating six meals per day or something, that, that is a terrible, you know, if you take that advice, eat six little meals per day, though they're, they're not so little, we know in most instances, and eat a high carb, and they got to be rich in grains and carbohydrates. All that does is ensure that every waking moment and even the first part of your sleep, so your sleeping moment is spent in a state of elevated insulin. You wake up, your insulin has finally come down overnight. You spike it with a bagel or a bowl of pure junk cereal. And a couple hours later, right as insulin's kind of peaking, about to come down, you bump it right back up and then back up and up and up and up. The person has spent all that time in a state of elevated insulin. That is a wonderful way to cause insulin resistance. So take a break. Uh, don't feel the need to eat so often. Uh, you know, start fasting either through dinner or through breakfast some days a week, sometimes do a 24-hour fast, but just give your body a break. You will be shocked at how good you feel. Yep. Great advice. Yep. And that's, uh, we're on the same page with everything you just said. Uh, yeah. I even, when I'm in clinic, I, I show patients a graph that when they eat any kind of a carbohydrate, whether it's a so-called good carbohydrate, like a fruit, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the glucose is going to go up. So is the insulin level. When you eat a protein, like you just said, it goes up a little bit. Um, when you eat fat, it hardly does anything. And That's so right. es especially if someone's insulin resistant and they're trying to reverse that, then it just makes sense that the majority of the calories need to be from fat and protein. Um, and it's, that's just a foreign concept. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's, that's what I try to push. Uh, with some intermittent fasting, because I think that helps the, uh, uh, the insulin sensitivity. Yep, um, it does. And, and you talked about meat. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, Dr. Sean Baker, who wrote- the, I know him well. He's a friend. Yeah. Okay. So yep. uh, I just interviewed him. It, it, the podcast hadn't come out yet. I think it was just last week I interviewed him. And so he obviously, uh, you know, he wrote a book, The Carnivore Diet. And, yep. and I, I- Yeah, he is great. He's a great yeah. advocate of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's radical to a lot of people. Uh, I actually think- uh, not that everybody has to eat that way, but the more I learn about it, it's actually a pretty healthy way to eat. 
Yeah, I will say when I first heard of it, I thought, boy, this sounds extreme. But yeah. scientifically, I, I could acknowledge that there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. So a person could theoretically thrive. I, I, do, I feel compelled to say the number of people I've seen improve what seemed to be irreversible autoimmune diseases like gut disorders and skin disorders in particular, those two oddly, oddly, those two in particular, problems of the gut and, and skin are, are totally, totally resolved. And, and they are, so these, these kind of carnivore people really are, including Sean and others that I know, even locally, are some of the strongest, really, they are like the, the paradigm of, of health and fitness. Yeah. They are robust, healthy people. And, and I, so even just based on these anecdotes, because there's not hard and fast clinical data yet, um, I, it's hard for me to ignore. Yeah. And there's thousands of testimonials, yep. of people reversing autoimmune disease and, and stuff, you know, on, on yep. this type, on this type of a diet. So that's right. Uh, yeah. Well, very good. Um, well, as we wrap up here, uh, I always ask all my guests to give us one tip that can make us healthier today. What would you say? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, uh, start with number one, um, control your carbs. So look at the next meal and maybe I would say, start with breakfast tomorrow. I, I really do believe there's power in, in waking up in the morning. Insulin is low. Let it stay low a little longer. Give it another four or five hours of staying low. You've, you've transitioned into fat burning away from glucose burning. Uh, you've, you've heightened your insulin sensitivity during this period. Uh, and, you know, while you've been sleeping, you wake up, keep that insulin low a little longer, um, and, and, you know, either fast until lunch or eat a, a low carb, high fat, high protein breakfast. So control those carbs and start tomorrow for breakfast. Very good. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. I just, uh, released last week, an interview with Jen Stevens. I don't know if you know her, uh, she mm -hmm. wrote uh, fast feast repeat. And so she's just oh, a, a, a yeah. big in, intermittent faster. She's got uh, a lot of actually several podcasts and, and stuff. So anyway, for those, uh, you know, who are listening to this, who want to learn more about intermittent fasting, just, just go, you know, find that episode. All right. So if you want to take a deeper dive on everything we've been talking about, the book is called why we get sick by Benjamin Bickman. Well, very good. Uh, well, Ben, we really appreciate your expertise on this topic and taking time with us today. Well, my pleasure. Greg, thanks again for reaching out. This is time well spent. And really, whether it's patients or, or not patient, a physician or not, I, I think we've covered some pretty relevant stuff. And I hope that any and all of the listeners feel uh, enriched in that regard. Well, great. Well, uh, thank you again. And uh, we th I thank you guys for listening. And I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com. This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk.